Our guest today is Lucas Bewell. Lucas is one of the world leading and earliest AI entrepreneurs. In fact, his first company, Crowdflower, was founded in 2007, many years before the modern deep learning era of AI took off. In 2019, Crowdflower, by then renamed into Figure 8, was sold to Appen for $300 million. Right before that, in 2018, Lucas founded a new machine learning developer tools company, Weights and Biases, which is still heads up today. In fact, I'm lucky enough to be a small investor in his company. In between, Lucas also spent some time at OpenAI, where we actually had a good amount of overlap. Lucas, so great to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Well, Lucas, before diving into today's conversation, I would like to thank our podcast sponsors, Index Ventures, and actually Weights and Biases, your company. Nice. Index Ventures is a venture capital firm that invests in exceptional entrepreneurs across all stages from seed to IPO. With offices in San Francisco, New York, and London, the firm backs founders across a variety of verticals, including AI, SaaS, fintech, security, gaming, and consumer. On a personal note, Index is an investor in Covariant, and I couldn't recommend them any higher. Weights and Biases is a MLOps platform that helps you train better models faster with experiment tracking, model and dataset versioning, and model management. They're used by OpenAI, NVIDIA, and almost every lab releasing a large model. In fact, many, if not all, of my students at Berkeley and colleagues at Covariant are big users of your product, Lucas, Weights and Biases. So, Lucas, we overlapped at Stanford, which you might maybe remember. Of course, of course I remember. <laughs> we overlapped at OpenAI, a bit more recent. I've been at AR community events that you have hosted. You've been at AR community events that I hosted. I've been on your Gradient Descent podcast. So glad to finally have you on my podcast here, The Robot Brains. Uh, thanks so much for making the time. Thank you. It's an honor. So let's dive right in. What is weights and biases? Well, I think we just heard the official line in the, um, <laughs> in the, in the what do you call it, the advertisement in the beginning. But I'll say from my perspective, you know, weights and biases from the very beginning has been all about building a platform to support the life cycle of machine learning in the real world. So <clears throat> helping people from, you know, the, the data collection to the model building to the deployment into production and really doing the things that, you know, ML developers don't want to do. Like kind of, we, we always look for the, the kind of like tough parts that shouldn't be tough and, and the, the stuff that isn't fun and, and taking it out of the hands of the people doing the really exciting model building. And I think our perspective has always been from the very beginning that we wanted to build stuff that we actually wanted to use. Me and my co-founders were ML engineers and we looked at the products out there in the market at the time and it all seemed like very products were decided by kind of like a, a kind of top-down corporate, you know, like thinking. And and we wanted to make things that's just like we would be proud to to give to our friends and have them use. And so we started with experiment tracking, which is what we're really well known for. And you know, since then we've added hyperparameter optimization and data set versioning and model registry. And we kind of keep adding things as our users and customers request them. I like this notion. You're you're excited to do the things that everybody else finds painful and hopes not to have to do. 
helps magically, it gets done by somebody else. I imagine you must have a field day going out, talking to practitioners. I mean, everybody has their complaints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, is there, are there conversations you think back at from the early days of weights and biases where you say, okay, well, these conversations really told me this is what we need to be doing? Oh, yeah, there's so many. Um, you know, when we first started, we thought maybe experiment tracking would be too small of a thing. And I think one of the things that really gave us confidence is when we put it in the hands of OpenAI. And I remember Wojciech telling me, you know, at first I, I didn't think this would be very useful. And it was actually really hard to get him to use it. And then he said, you know, I can't believe how much more useful this is than I thought. And that really gave us a lot of confidence. And then I remember another conversation with Hamel, who is at GitHub, and he was like, Lucas, you know, your tool is really useful, but the UI is so ugly <laughs> that I actually don't want to use it. Like I'm thinking of even going to a competitor because your UI is so awful. And um, that really inspired us to kind of clean up the UI. And I think that actually might be the thing that really led to our growth, which is funny because I think like, you know, engineers, especially ML engineers, wouldn't think that they're so you know, motivated by like a nice looking UI. But I think at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we want to use products that are delightful. I mean, the one use case, of course, is the developers, researchers, ML engineers using it. But from where I sit as a professor, as a chief scientist at Covariant, essentially not running the experiments myself, it's also very interesting to see my collaborators, they'll pull up graphs from weights and biases to, sh to show what's going on, what's working, what's not working. So from my perspective, actually, the UI is the only thing I, I personally experience, and it's nice that it's, you know, well taken care of. Well, if you have any feedback, we're always open to it. We, most of our good ideas have come from guys like you. Now, well, I'll keep that in mind next time I get some results presented. You started a company now, you know, four or five years ago, by the way, the name is really, I mean, Weights and Biases, such a clever name, obviously. Now, when you started the company, you wanted to help people track their experiments. And that's still a really important use case today. Is it still the biggest use case? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Where do you see that go with other use cases popping up, new complaints coming in, things <laughs> other people don't want to do? Well, you know, it's funny, like if you look at the the different things that we offer, the usage is really correlated with how long ago we, we released them, right? So I think there's other companies that try to say, hey, we have this ML platform and we do kind of everything under the sun. And we've kind of in contrast tried to do bite-sized pieces of the ML workflow and do them really well. And it really takes a while before something gets, you know, really good that people want to use it. Like every... You know, every month more people use our, our hyperparameter search. We launched that, you know, two years ago. And I think it's a really great product now, but it's taken quite a lot of people using it to get the details right where it's really delightful. Like there's tons of open source, you know, hyperparameter optimization things that are, are really great. You know, and we're not trying to say we have any secret sauce. We just try to make it really easy, like so easy that you, you know, you, you would just do it, right? Because I think that's where a lot of people kind of know they should be doing it, but you know, it's kind of a pain to set up. It feels kind of risky if you spend a lot of time on a, you know, hyperbar optimization that ends up going haywire. And so we try to make that really good. And then, you know, the next thing that we launched was our dataset versioning called Artifacts. And that, you know, is probably the number three thing that, that people use. And again, that's another kind of slow build where, 
you know, people want to version data sets. It's kind of painful. I mean, even just keeping track of the size of data sets that we get from customers now, like even the file that's just the list of the files that a customer has, you know, gets so big that like syncing that without slowing down training takes a fair amount of work on our end. And so, you know, our adoption curve on everything has kind of been as we've launched it. And we've released the model registry product, you know, a couple months ago. And that has, you know, like, like, tens of excited companies using it. That might be a little more corporate. I don't know if, you know, researchers would need to use a model registry as much as companies. So that may never have the same kind of volume of usage, but, you know, it's earlier and we're still getting lots of feedback and still kind of actively trying to improve it. And then, you know, we have a whole bunch of stuff in the works for 2023 that we're really excited about. Anything you can share? Yeah, yeah, totally. And again, this is, it's nothing shocking because this is kind of pushed from our customers. We're putting out a thing called Weave that is really around allowing much more customization on our customers' end. Like, you know, one of the things that everybody runs into once they become heavy users is they want to make their own crazy graphs. And, you know, ML people want all kinds of like, you know, crazy analysis and graphs. And we want to make it possible to really, to not have to dump data out of weights and biases as much and use the fact that your data is in a good database and, and kind of pull out the kinds of queries that, that people want and allow a lot more customization. So we're excited about that. We're also coming out with a kind of evaluation in production system that you know, people have been asking us for for years, but we really wanted to get that good. And you know, a whole bunch of other kind of uh, stuff around the ML, the ML workflow. There's a new product that we launched recently, but we haven't made a ton of noise about called Launch that I'm really excited about, which actually lets you launch <laughs> um, runs from inside the weights and biases interface. And that's been surprisingly popular. So I think we're going to invest a lot more into that and make it really a great experience for everyone. Uh, a lot of interesting things you bring up there. When I think about hyperparameter sweeps, it used to be kind of a research area that was pretty active. Bayesian optimization for hyperparameter optimization, then papers about, oh, just, you know, random sampling across all the axes is actually more efficient than literally sweeping, you'll get better coverage somehow in the right spots. I'm uh-huh. curious, can you share what's happening for the weights and biases hyperparameter optimization? Yeah, so our, our, my observation was, I think it's pretty clear that if you're looking for the best set of hyperparameters, Bayesian optimization works well. And I think it actually works even better in production than in the papers. Like the papers tend to use MNIST where you know, it's a pretty constrained set of bounds that are kind of reasonable guesses. And I think in the real world, people have less good priors on what good hyperparameters are going to be and often many more hyperparameters that they could be changing. Yeah, but what we observed is when we would go into companies full of smart people, they were never doing Bayesian optimization, mm-hmm. almost never. And, you know, we asked them why and it felt like the, the sort of open source projects felt like they were too hard to set up and too tweaky right? Like there's just so many parameters that you don't really know what they do. And you're kind of worried that the cost of a bad hyperparameter optimization would be really high. And, and then, you know, Google had, I think like AutoML and there's some like, you know, totally automated black box ones, but that makes people nervous. Cause it's like, well, could we, you know, reproduce this? Like, what is it actually really doing? And so we thought, let's just make something easy and transparent, you know? So we implemented, you know, Bayesian optimization with, you know, Gaussian priors and also TPE for the modeling and put in reasonable defaults. And then, you know, we worked with customers to even figure out what are kind of better, you know, reasonable defaults for kind of real world, you know, s- situations that you actually get into. Because these papers are really run on toy examples. So I think they end up with kind of bad defaults for real world cases. And our idea was, look, 
we'll let you tweak whatever you want, but we'll start with reasonable defaults that'll usually get you into a reasonable place. And then, you know, tell us if there's a problem and we can kind of like handle that. And, you know, there's some other details too, like if you run your search in parallel, I mean, a lot of papers gloss over this. Like if you're actually running thing in parallel, which you're almost always doing, and, you know, you run the algorithm like 10 times in parallel, it's going to come up with the same 10, you know, parameters. So, you know, that's something that you have to deal with. And of course, there's papers that talk about how to do that in a clever way, but nobody really implemented that. So again, it was just like, kind of cleaning up the real world details so that people would actually do hyperparameter search because it's a pretty big benefit, right? It's like, you know, 2x, 3x, 4x speed up on getting to the same, you know, quality of, of you know, accuracy or loss or whatever you care about. Absolutely. And I'll be honest, hyperparameter search has always intrigued me. And one of the things that has also intrigued me, I'm curious if, if that's part of what you do or not, is this notion that you could run, uh, you could cut runs short. Yeah. So when... Yeah, so we do that too. Actually, it's it's. I think people should use it a lot more, but you know the problem is that you you don't learn as much if you don't let all the runs end. So it makes it kind of complicated to do the post hoc analysis. But if you really want to get the best run, actually, early stopping is much more important than you know Bayesian optimization or any fancy hyperparameter search strategy. So again, we implemented a paper. You know, it's 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 pretty simple, right? You let the runs run, and then you you know, cut off the ones pretty aggressively that they'll look like they're doing well after a certain amount of time. And you know, we tried to make that really easy to use. I think the we really implemented the paper kind of verbatim hyperband. We could put a, a link to it. It seemed like the state of the art, but I think it's a little bit opaque. Like it's a little bit hard to understand. You know, the parameters are all like Greek letters, and we could probably do a better job of just explaining exactly what it is and what we're doing to our users. And I bet they would use it more. Talking about explaining things, one of the things I had noticed when doing my research ahead of our conversation here is you have a blog, but it became a little inactive lately yeah. in the last couple of years, actually. <laughs> the things you just described seems like they would make for beautiful blog posts. That's good feedback. Yeah. No, I think I've, I've been, it's, it's so hard to get in that maker mindset, even writing stuff when you're, when you're running a company. I don't know how you do it with so many companies and teaching, but I wish I had more time to sit down and write. Yeah, I need a lot of help, I guess, which I'm sure you have, but you need even more help. <laughs> the other thing that stood out among the things you mentioned is model registry. It really stood out to me because I, I've never heard it before. I don't know what it is. Ah, you're a professor, I think. that's. A... <laughs> <laughs> so here's the basic problem, and it's really real. Like our customers talk about this a lot, right? You know, when you're actually deploying, you know, real stuff into the real world, you really want a record of what you deployed. And you often want some specific process about how things get deployed, where like, you know, if something gets put, you know, as like kind of pre-production, a certain suite of tests get run on it, and then maybe it automatically gets pushed into production, or maybe somebody pushes a button. And then you actually keep track of when stuff goes in to production, which is yeah, you know, can be really important for like triaging things later. And a lot of regulated industries, like automotive, you know, you need to produce exactly the version of your model that was, you know, running in a car or running in a machine at a, at a particular moment. So again, it's like not the most, I don't know, like complicated, like researchy problem, but, you know, really getting it right where like, you know, a whole team will use it and, and actually like want to use it is the real challenge there. There's another thing too with like, you know, some of the laws, especially coming out of Europe, right? Like, you might need to remove like three examples from your training data of like a billion examples because three people requested it and then really prove that like on this date, 
the model that's in production wasn't trained on the specific data. And it's like, again, not like intellectually stimulating, <laughs> but a pretty complicated thing to do when a whole team is kind of working on this thing and, and running fast. So those are the kinds of problems that the, our model registry solves. So far in our conversation, Ashley, everything you've said reminds me of something else you said earlier in a previous podcast that you were on. You said, our true north is listening to customers, which is very intriguing because most companies, true north is their own vision, right? It's, this is how things should be. This is what we're going to build. It's the right way. And you're explicitly actually phrasing it very differently. Uh-huh. I don't know. I think my CTO might get mad at me. I mean, he is like very opinionated, but I think it's important. It's important to us to really be listening carefully to customers. And I do feel like a lot of entrepreneurs get in a little bit of a, you know, the Steve Jobs mode of like, you know, I know what's best. And like that thing of like, you know, a customer when like Henry Ford thing, customer would ask for a faster horse versus a car. But it's like, if you showed a customer a car, they'd be pretty excited about it, I bet, right? And so, you know, it's like, I think like true listening to customers isn't just about like, hey, what do you want? It's about like collaborating with them and like showing them ideas and, and really learning how they're thinking. And I think one thing that really permeates weights and biases that's been responsible for most of our success is we've really taken a point of view of, you know, it's the people doing ML that we love, that we care about, and we really want to collaborate with them. Like, I think other companies develop too much of a point of view about exactly how, you know, something, something should work. And in ML, the best practices are changing so fast. I think you need more flexibility maybe than in other um, industries. So, you know, if somebody wants to use our thing in a different way than we exactly intended, or they want to, you know, rip out part of our stuff and use their own crazy hyperparameter search thing, we love that, right? We're not trying to lock people into our our set of stuff, we're trying to figure out what's actually useful. One of the other things that I think must be happening as, you know, weights and biases is the go-to tooling for, for tracking experiments is that from your end, you can probably spot trends much earlier than many other people could because you would see practitioners start running different kinds of experiments, different types of data, different types of maybe real-world problems that nobody yet knows are being tackled with machine learning. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, what's going on here? Do you have any, any such stories? I mean, I know some things might not be shareable, but anything you're able to share? Well, the big thing that we keep seeing that's really obvious in our data is new frameworks. Like, I, I feel like there was a time when, when we started, you know, TensorFlow was clearly the incumbent and people were using PyTorch, but they felt kind of bad about it. Like, especially companies would be like, well, you know, we're using PyTorch because it's kind of, we kind of like it but we're going to switch to TensorFlow when we like, you know, get, go into production. And then when we looked at our own data, it was like, man, like everyone is using PyTorch, like hardly anyone is using TensorFlow. And then we saw Lightning take off. And so we, of course we like, we integrated, you know, with them right away, but, but we were, we were just like, wow, you know, that's like a big trend. So like one, one thing for us is like, we look to that data to decide, you know, who to integrate with. And so that's, that's kind of a simple thing. We've been trying to kind of find, you know, more interesting patterns to help the community. Like we tweeted out the average learning rate, which I, I thought was kind of fun. Like people were really into it. And then we, someone asked what's the top random number seeds. And so we got a, a list of those. <laughs> I, I want to, I mean, I don't want, 
our users and customers to feel like they're my, we're like minding their private stuff to, you know, like, like we really want to be like careful with our customers data, but if there are ways to help the community with like, you know, suggesting hyperparameters or like backtesting, you know, hyperparameter optimization algorithms, I think those could be, could be really great things, great things to do. And we're, we're, we're starting to look at that. One thing I'm curious about is in the kind of Twitter discussions about machine learning or go to conferences, all the talk is about very large models. Like that, that's the other thing literally pretty much anybody talks about. What do you see from a weights and biases perspective? Is that indeed what's happening on the ground at this point is almost all the training very large models or is there still smaller models being trained? No, I mean, that's, I think that's a big disconnect. I mean, I, I love the large models. I mean, like if you look at our infrastructure bills, <laughs> the large models totally dominate, but lots and lots of people use random forest. Lots of people are training on small data sets. I mean, the, the applications in research and the applications in industry are still quite different. And I think in industry, there's, you know, much more care put into the size of the model and the, you know, complexity of the model. When you take a step back, independent of weights and bias specifically, and you think about what's been happening in AI over recent years, what do you think is going to happen next? <laughs> well, you might know better than me. I, I have some bets on the market that, I don't know if they're controversial, but they're sort of maybe different than you know, some of my investors think. I think that there is a real... I mean, I guess this is obvious, but there's a real explosion in in applications happening right now. And I'm talking about like real world applications. Like, you know, people ask when, you know, will deep learning, you know, really be affecting businesses? And it's like today, you know, I mean, like our none of our customers, all of our customers are doing something that they're putting into production. And we work with almost everyone, right? I mean, you know, we work with like a huge fraction of the Fortune 500 to do real things like developing drugs. That's That's a real application that people are really heavily investing in, you know, factory automation, but even things like demand forecasting, which every business really needs. I mean, it is really happening right now. And I think the breakthroughs in, you know, some of the stuff like these, like, you know, chat GPT and Dolly, they kind of look like toys, I think, to like a lot of kind of business people. But of course, the the applications of it are obvious. And I think that we're about to see, like, I think that's going to fuel another explosion of use cases because suddenly a ton of more stuff really works. And then I think within companies, people think that, they still think that there's going to be like three or four companies that just build models and everybody else like tweaks them. I mean, this is a lot of people in academia think it, a lot of people in industry think it. And it's just completely contrary to the data that, that we see, right? Like we see every one of our customers like hiring ML researchers as fast as they can. And we see them building really large teams to like integrate the models into what they're doing and they want real ML engineers that do that. So I think it's like a really fast growing field. And I think that the ML engineers themselves in industry are going to be the ones that like push the innovation forward, right? So like, I think you've seen how software engineers um, have so much power in organizations. Everybody talks about the rocks there because they automate stuff. I mean, the ML engineers are sort of like automating the automation of software in a way. And so all the things that are true about software engineers, like, you know, they're really like, you know, they have like a lot of sway, like, you know, companies are kind of coddling them, like paying them huge salaries. That's all happening even more extreme um, with the people that are um, working on ML. And I don't see why that trend 
wouldn't continue. I mean, you could imagine that everybody starts buying their models from from OpenAI, but I, I'm honestly pretty skeptical of that story, even though I love OpenAI as a customer. I think you'd be surprised how much companies really, really, really want to develop their own IP and feel like they're holding their own models. And even if it's like fine-tuning a model, they still want to hold that model. They still want experts to come in and do that. So I, I think like, you know, ML is kind of under, like over-promised, under-delivered for so long. And now finally it's like over-delivering. So I think we might even be underestimating the explosion of like useful applications that are about to happen. Oh, that's, that's really exciting. I will say, I mean, it's kind of a hypothesis. We had, meaning Richard Soker, myself, Chris Manning, Anthony Goblin, Suchi Soraya when starting AI Ventures, the, the kind of um, early stage venture firm for AI that, that we run, is that this is the time there's going to be so many new, really, applications slash industries emerging that weren't possible before, thanks to AI. And I really like what you said there, because I think it's very intriguing that as an AI engineer or machine learning engineer, you can, obviously, if you have a team, you can do more. But even on your own, if you are really good, you can get enormous things done, enormous accomplishments, which which is really unique, I think, compared to most professions, how much you can even do as a single person in, in this field. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, one of the big trends, of course, is to do to, to use these large language models and hope that they'll do what you want them to do. And so one way to try to get that done is you, you fine-tune them on your own data and you hope then it, it adapts to what, what you need. Um, the other way is to put prompts into these models that kind of effectively have some recency or slash in-context learning effect on these models to do what you want them to do. It seems like from the things you described, that could almost be a, a weights and biases product too, essentially, rather than, you know, data versioning tracking would be like prompt version tracking for every deployment. When was which prompt active for one query and so forth? Yeah, no, we'd love to do it. I mean, we're, we're practical people and we follow, you know, what our customers want. So far, we haven't seen as much interest in prompt engineering from our like customers that are really working on stuff as you see on Twitter. But of course, sometimes Twitter is the leading indicator and some of the results are, are truly amazing. So, you know, as we, as we see more demand, we might start investing in, in prompt engineering products. And we're starting to see customers kind of tweak our own product to do prompt engineering. I think what's for sure is that if you're in ML selling tools or a platform, you have to keep them super flexible because best practices feel like they change every couple months. And so we've really tried to keep, you know, our technical debt low and our platform flexibility high to be ready for all the changes that we expect in the in the industry. Now one of the most interesting things to me about you, Lucas, is the fact that you started a machine learning company before that was really a thing. <laughs> um, back in two thousand seven, machine learning companies were not really a, a thing. And I'm really curious, how did you somehow conclude that that's what you're going to do well ahead of the trends? Because I remember we were both students at Stanford, both having a good time working on machine learning research in the Stanford AI lab. I continued to do research, became professor and so forth. You went a very different path. What made you go that different path? Well, you know, I think honestly, I... um 
I actually had kind of a struggle in that lab working with Daphne where she asked me to work on natural language processing. And I think that she didn't know at the time the data sets that well. So I was kind of taking her models and applying them to, to NLP. And a lot of it was topic modeling. And I spent months, I mean, I feel like a year working on WordNet. I don't know if anyone remembers this. And there was like a, there was this corpus of where every word had been kind of labeled with the sense that it was like, you know, is it like plan the sense of power plant or plan the sense of like living thing? And I was doing this topic modeling and I was really excited to get a paper out and it seemed like it was working really well. And this is back with like Bayes nets, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and so they're really hard to get right. And, and I had like written all the software and it's like all these nights where I was like, you know, not sleeping to get it done. And I was like, okay, we got this great result. And then I realized that like the topics were in like sets of 10. So it was like thinking like document one through 10 is a topic and like 11 through 20 is a topic. And I started like digging in more into the data and the topics were actually the person that was annotating. And it was just like heartbreaking because it was like all this work that I put in that I thought was working. It wasn't actually figuring out topics. It was like figuring out the annotator. And it felt like a really uninteresting result that you couldn't publish. And then I talked to people that kind of knew that data set better. And they're like, oh yeah, of course, like everybody knows that, like there's like annotator bias here. And I was just like, Man, you know, and then I, I started working on with Daphne and kind of other applications, like what else could we apply this to? And it just felt like the applications were totally based around weird things where you happen to get a data set. Like there was that Enron email corpus because like the Enron emails got subpoenaed. And, and it just felt like, wouldn't the more interesting thing be to collect data sets on meaningful applications and, and get them labeled and then use sort of normal methods you know, the state, of, the state of the art ML methods that aren't that complicated at the time to get useful applications. So, you know, I went in and, um, you know, worked at some startups, but that was really kind of nagging at me. And then when Mechanical Turk came out, um, I thought, wow, this is like awesome. Like we can finally label stuff. But of course, Mechanical Turk was so unbelievably hard to use. I really wanted to make a version that was just useful for for labeling because it really felt like at the time that was really the bottleneck in in machine learning. And I had no idea how hard it would be. I think I just, like, I don't know, just, <laughs> it seemed like a useful thing that people would want, and I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And so then you founded Crowdflower, which was, as I understand, exactly focused on that, on helping people build their data sets, get them annotated. Yeah, yeah. But this was long before deep learning took off, long before people were in such a large data set mindset, right? But somehow you knew or predicted, I don't know if you knew, knew, <laughs> but you predicted this, this is a really important trend. Well, it was so obvious at the time, right? Because it was like that, I mean, Peter Norvig had that paper, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Data, whereas like all the machine learning applications that work are the ones where we happen to have a lot of data. And so I, I wasn't the only one observing it. Like, I think it was just like unbelievably clear but I think that the people working in machine learning didn't feel empowered to get their own data sets. And so they would just use whatever data sets got invented. I mean, even back then, I feel like the linguists really controlled the data sets that were created. So I felt like they put way more like process around the labeling than was really necessary versus like getting a high volume. They're like, we should get like a smaller amount of high quality data, you know, which makes sense if what you're interested in is actually the linguistic result. But if you're trying to make like an application, you know, you might be willing to, you know, sacrifice like some of the annotation pieces to collect data or high volume for sure, you know, depending on the application. And so, yeah, I feel really proud. I mean, we, we helped a lot of companies 
actually deploy machine learning models, you know, back then. It was a really, it was a meaningful thing. It was just a tough, you know, business to run because you had all these, you know, human annotators around the world that you had to, you know, manage well. And that ended up being like a real, a real challenge for me. I remember, and I'm hoping I'm remembering this correctly, at some point driving on the 101 and I see a big billboard that says Crowdflower. <laughs> and to me, that was one of the moments, I forget what year it was. It's, it's many years ago now, obviously. I was like, wait, there's actually somebody out there making money with machine learning things. <laughs> Can afford a billboard. <laughs> wow, interesting. I feel proud that, that you felt that way. We, yeah, we had a lot of debate around the getting a billboard, but we've heard so many stories and even like customers that came because they saw the billboard. So it turned out to be ironically a really good, um, a good piece of marketing that I was honestly against because it seemed so expensive at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was the moment when I was like, wait, isn't that... <laughs> Lucas's company there, you know, this is, this is actually working apparently. <laughs> if we go a bit further back, I'm really curious as a kid, what kept you busy and how do you go from, you know, most kids don't immediately think about AI as a career. I imagine <laughs> how do you end up where you are today? Well, honestly, my dad actually had a huge impact on me by reading that book, Gerdel Escher Bach, when I was like way too young which has so many wrong ideas about machine learning, but I think it really sparked my imagination around how cool it would be if like machines could write their own programs and run them. And then when I was a teenager, I got really interested in this game Go. And I really liked it because it was so elegant and I was really good at it, which, which you know felt good. But then I kept thinking about how you would build like an algorithm to play Go and the ones that that would win at chess, like really wouldn't work for Go. And so I was really thinking about that, like when I, you know, when I got to Stanford and really wanted to work on it. And then it was funny because it was like right in the, what do they call it, the AI winter when you know, everyone's like, don't, you know, don't do this. And so it really got, got discouraged in my first couple of years and ended up doing my undergrad in, in math. But I, I you know, I kind of wish I had done it in, in more CS and kind of gotten a head start there. Well, I'm sure you've more than made up for it since then. <laughs> now, it's interesting that games play such a big role because if I think about myself to me that was the first time I got really intrigued by AI was when in one of the classes back in Belgium still they started explaining how you would build a chess player an AI chess player and to me just what seemed so intriguing was the fact that you could write code and it was more hard-coded back then and the way they taught it than the way it's more learned, of course, today, but that you could write code that actually could then outsmart you. Yeah. That to me was oh, one of the most intriguing concepts out there. You know, Daphne Kohler actually had this class uh, they took as an undergrad in, in AI. And the best part of the class was we wrote a reinforcement learning algorithm to play Othello. And it was just so fun because you would watch the Othello program you know, start and it's so bad and then it gets better and better and then it completely crushes you. And the actual like score isn't obvious how you should do it um, in Othello. And I remember just like watching the program learn and getting better and better. And it was, it was honestly like one of the peak experiences of my life. Like it's such a great contained project. Like I, I hope she still does that, that class project. I, I just, I, I think honestly, that's what really made me want to research in AI. Now, one of the things that makes you stand out compared to 
most researchers, of course, though it's, it's changing now, I mean, I think there is a whole, you know, big entrepreneurship push all across AI is you're early kind of taking on entrepreneurship in this space. And I'm curious, like one thing is division of data and so forth. Better data will lead to better results, but there's a lot more to division than to running a company than just a vision you come in with, right? So I'm curious if you have any advice for people who are thinking of starting their own companies, things, you know, maybe lessons you've learned or maybe things you just knew ahead of time and, you know, are proud that you got right. Well, you know, I, I got a lot wrong. I mean, I, I think, you know, Crowdflower took many, many years before it started to take off and now, you know, scale AI is so much more successful, which still kind of eats at me <laughs> as an entrepreneur. <laughs> but I, it's a good question. I mean, I think that one thing I, I kind of worry about a little bit for this, this is not absolutely not true when I was starting Crowdflower is I feel like the first part of raising money has gotten really easy for people, you know, coming out of your lab. And I think it kind of tricks people in a way. Like, you know, when I was trying to raise money for Crowdflower in 2007, people really advised me, like, don't talk about ML. That sounds like a bad thing to bring up. It sounds like a science experiment. You know, don't say it. And it took us years to raise our first round. I mean, we had to get revenue before that and we had no money. I mean, I remember, you know, biking over to Best Buy to buy a fax machine to, to like <laughs> send our first contract. And I think it gave us a kind of resilience or toughness that I think is really important at some point, as, as you know, from, from the companies that, that you've done. But I think that people maybe get the wrong impression when, you know, they can raise these big rounds, like right off the bat and just sort of spend money for a while. Like, you know, at the end of the day, you have to build a working business. Like all the successful companies have built a working business. And I, I don't think people luck into it as much as people imagine. Like, you know, maybe Google discovered this incredible money fountain, but I remember talking to, you know, Larry and Sergey when they were really young and they were pretty focused on making a working business. I think more than people realize. And, you know, advertising and search was always on their minds and kind of figuring out how to do that in a smart bidding way. You know, it was a real focus on monetization that, that I think maybe people don't don't have enough of. Like when I look at the other ML companies in, in our space, I think you can instantly tell there's like two genres. There's like one started by business people where the product's not that good. <laughs> and there's um and there's one started by ML people which typically is like, you know, hey, this we're giving this away for free and we're gonna kind of monetize with some other product that we're gonna launch later. And I think both of those paths are really risky in, in this industry. Yeah, I mean, that that definitely resonates. I mean, it's tricky, of course, because kind of self-enforcing that you will not raise much and be very scrappy. Why it might have some benefits if you have competitors who are better funded and somehow still are scrappy <laughs> despite being well-funded. <laughs> I would say take the money. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm just saying I think that most, there's a lot of benefits to raising a lot of money for sure. But I do think there's this kind of hidden downside that in some ways makes things tougher um, for people building companies today. Yeah, I mean, that absolutely resonates. And there is this whole craze, of course, now where in generative AI, where it, you know, yeah, just people raise $100 million out of the gate. And then and then they fight me on like a $100 license for weights and biases. And it's like, I'm going to kill you. If anyone who's out there is listening, if you've raised $100 million, you can pay our full price for <laughs> for a weights and biases license. <laughs> now, not exactly an AI question, but we're we're both parents. In fact, 
you've been parallel parent a little longer than I have been. So I'm, I'm actually curious, what are some things you prioritize for your daughter? That's a good question. I, I really want her to experience as many different things as possible. I think, I think that's a big priority for me. Like I love to just kind of push her a little bit to like explore the world that we're in. I also want to have a really good relationship with her, you know? And so I think I try to follow her interests as much as possible. Like I feel like my dad did a really good job getting me interested in math, not by like beating it down my throat, but by genuinely being really interested in it. And so, I don't know, my daughter right now, she's three and she is really, really interested in storytelling. And I just love to let her like tell me these crazy stories and then, you know, I try to write them down for her. And, you know, I just, it, it just makes me so happy to, that, that she's just so into something. I guess I don't have a very set philosophy. I'm still figuring it out. I, I go back and forth. I don't know if you feel this way yet, but like how much to kind of push her to do stuff. I mean, sometimes I feel like, why am I sort of inflicting my own worldview? But then sometimes she really likes it. And so I'm, I often feel conflicted about that. Yeah, I think it's complicated. I mean, ours are still below one year old. So <laughs> oh, is your son still only one? Wow. One, not even one. Wow. So yeah. <laughs> I see. Still, still much younger. So, but it is interesting because when I think back to my own childhood, I feel like sometimes my parents did, I would say, strongly nudge, strongly <laughs> encourage, never truly forced, but strongly encouraged me to at least try certain things. Always with the notion that, you know, just try it once, don't like it, don't have to go the next time, but just go try it out and let's see how it goes. And I feel like usually as a kid, I was right. If I wasn't excited, then <laughs> one time I tried it, it was just, you know, not that great. But then there are these exceptions. I mean, when I look back where mostly things in my experience where I was nudged to go do something that I actually wanted to do, but I was afraid to do it because none of my friends were going to do it and I would be alone exposed to a whole new group of people and not knowing anybody going in. And I think that's a place where my parents definitely nudged me to, you know, you want to do this, don't, don't you know, ho hopefully, you know, he'll totally. meet somebody there you can get along with in this camp or this event or whatever. And I think those are the ones that definitely were very good nudges. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I could still use that nudge sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's interesting, but it's also interesting because in the age of AI, it seems like everything's changing so fast. And it seems like if I even think about what job are my sons going to do, it's just like, I mean, I don't even know what jobs there that are going to exist <laughs> 20 years from now, which I think if you go 30, 40 years back, it was probably much easier to think about which jobs would exist in the future and think ahead towards those jobs. Oh, that's funny. Like my, my wife's parents, I feel like were much more like they were, they were like first generation immigrants and much more like, okay, be a doctor or a lawyer. And then when my wife became an, an entrepreneur, they were, they were kind of irritated by that, I think, or, or felt like failures, but that actually turned out to be an incredibly good move for her. So I, I feel like there's quite a lot of uncertainty, you know, like you say, and, and it's funny, my wife is already saying, Hey, like, why don't you teach, you know, Matilda to, to write code? And I, you know, I'm kind of looking at the, you know, the code auto generation tools out there and I'm like, I think writing code is really fun. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to do this for fun because I love it, but I don't know if this is a really good life skill that we're teaching her, you know, it might be like learning to like weave or something. 
<laughs> learning to play Go or chess. Yeah, exactly. It's brain training, but it's <laughs> maybe not a sustainable uh, occupation in the long run. Totally. Yeah, very, very, very interesting. If you think specifically about, let's say, high school students who are much closer to making career choices, right? Are there some resources, if they're interested in AI, that you think are really good resources to, to go check out? Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's an incredible amount of resources, and it sort of depends on your interest. Like, I, I feel like I met a 19-year-old a couple of days ago that, like, learned code from YouTube and now is, you know, training these, like, huge, like a huge LLM. And so, you know, I feel like if you're technical, there's just a massive amount of online learning content on whatever you care about. I, I feel like the light intros that are really fun is, like, the, the two minutes paper channel, like, you know, this channel, I, I feel like it really just depends on what you're into. But I can't believe the amount of interesting free resources. Like, I've gotten obsessed. I don't know about you, but I kind of couldn't believe when Three Blue and Brown came out, how well done all this math stuff was. And I have an undergraduate degree in math from Stanford. I feel like I know math pretty well. And his stuff was still, like, challenging me. And it's kind of gotten me down this rabbit hole of, like, math YouTube that I feel like I still learn from. So... I mean, I don't even know we're recording this now, but I, 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 like, I feel like the, there's just an explosion of awesome educational stuff on any topic. Yeah, I think that's definitely, I mean, it's amazing what, what's out there in terms of the community. The, the machine learning community is just somehow very oriented towards putting materials out. A lot of people take a lot of joy in sharing their expertise and try to find the best possible way to, to share that expertise and, you know, in, in a large-scale way. You have put some course materials out yourself. Are you still actively doing that these days? We are, yeah. I mean, you know, the main way that people find weights and biases these days is actually a really cool program that we have where people can publish little reports on any topic. I would say little, they could, be, they could be big, but they tend to be a little more lightweight than a research paper and doesn't have the same, you know, vetting process where it has to be you know, it could be just like, how do you use PyEnv well with machine learning projects? Or like, you know, how should I set my learning rate if I'm doing like a vision application? Or, you know, how do I get started in Hugging Face? And, and so these reports are actually the main way that people discover weights and biases. More people come to read the reports than to use our tool. And I feel really proud of that because I feel like we're, we're doing marketing, but we're putting a lot of good into the world, like useful stuff that is actually really hard for me even to, to figure out. Like setting up a machine and getting the GPU running is still you know, a challenge for me. And then we have these longer classes, which you also make available for free, like a, an MLOps class. I mean, I feel like there's so much really good stuff on training models, like so much university content is out there for free now that we don't necessarily want to compete with that. But I kind of feel like the stuff that we know really well is like how to make the stuff work in production. So I feel really proud of our MLOps course. And, and you know, it's free for anyone that that wants to take it. And it's been so successful. We actually plan to put out you know, more. Again, the topic's kind of guided by what people ask us for. Well, I think it's super exciting you're putting that all out. And I want to make sure that we'll, you know, we'll sync up later and make sure to include a, a link in the table of contents because I think it's just such a great resource for people who want to learn more, especially on, on the practical side, get things going. Maybe one final question, Lucas. If you think about the future of, of AI, what's going to, you know, what, what might be happening in the next five to 10 years? What are some of the things that you are personally most excited about? I mean, one thing that I don't understand as well as I should, but seems really exciting is the biology and chemistry applications. Like we're seeing more and more people using 
weights and biases to develop drugs and develop new materials. We see a lot of chemists actually coming in as user, users of our platform. And we see, I think we work with almost all of the big pharmaceutical companies now, which like they didn't have any ML program a few years ago. And now they buy hundreds of licenses for their, for their teams. And wow. I, I'm so excited about that because it feels so meaningful. Like, you know, like making a new drug that actually saves lives, I think is just, you know, such something that, that I think the whole industry should feel really proud of. I kind of think, again, like I was saying in the, in the in my head, I, I feel like Transformers pushes things for a good long time. Like it doesn't really show signs of running out of steam from my perspective. So I don't know about AGI and all that, but what I, what I do know is that there's like a rich vein of like a lot of things working better and better and better. And actually, like if you look at like, I know I was thinking about this, like you look at like um, speech recognition, right? People work on speech recognition for the last like 30, 40 years. And if you plot the state of the art, there's not really a step function change anywhere, right? It just sort of improves you know, steadily over time. But then there's this moment where speech recognition isn't annoying anymore and you're kind of happy to talk to, you know, an Alexa or something. And I kind of think that's going to happen with a lot of other stuff too, where we might like chat interfaces to every product, right? You're starting to see that. And those have been so annoying for so long. But you know what? Like I, maybe it's time to revisit that. Like maybe I don't want to query my database with SQL. Maybe I want to query my database with chat, right? And And the code generation right at this moment, just that seems like, in a way, the most exciting thing, because that accelerates the whole industry. And I don't quite find the co-generation stuff now like really useful day to day, but it is like so close. And I imagine it's only going to get better and better. And so that just feels like something that'll that'll kind of touch the whole industry and accelerate um, everything. Yeah, th- those absolutely resonate. And just kind of... <laughs> Not sure if you you would remember this, but Microsoft used to have this thing called Clip, the most annoying yeah, little assistant yeah. ever. <laughs> I wonder if uh, if uh, Microsoft and OpenAI will make some only about Microsoft and OpenAI will go retro and bring that paperclip at the highest crack. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a bold move. I feel like people still hate that thing. Like thirty years later, that was the boldest <laughs> move ever. Yes, <laughs> I feel like the one really like missing thing is like household robots. So I hope that you give me a robot in my house at some point. That's, that's. Hey, I'd love, I'd love to make that happen. I think, I think it's a very hard problem because of the diversity across homes. There's very little structure and, and the physical world is very unforgiving compared to digital world. Usually AI makes a mistake. You just, you know, fix it by typing something else instead. Physical can make a big mess, but it, it's, it's something I'm dreaming of <laughs> to hopefully get there. Who would have thought, though, that like writing code would be easier than like a little robot that runs around my house and helps me out? I, <laughs> I wouldn't have predicted that 20 years ago for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought that either. If writing code seems such a sophisticated practice, and then it turns out once you've seen enough statistics <laughs> on how to write code, you, you can get going as an AI. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lucas, this was... A lot of fun, really insightful. Thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, thank you.